This is An American Workplace, a podcast dedicated to re-watching and discussing NBC's beloved mockumentary series, The Office. My name is Chad Hopkins, and joining me, as always, is my good friend and co-host, Katie White. Katie, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm well, Chad, getting ready for uh, the first real holiday of the holiday season, getting excited for Thanksgiving this week. How about you? Oh, same here. I slept in for the first time in a while yesterday, Saturday morning, and then I realized that I could do that every day this week if I wanted to, because I won't have students, and I'm very excited about that. I do. Yeah, we're going camping. I think I mentioned this in the last episode, but uh, I am so ready for a break and uh, looking forward to the holiday. Um, To start us off today, I wanted to mention something that is relevant to our discussion, I suppose, not to today's discussion, but to The Office. Jenna Fisher, who of course plays Pam, has a new book out called The Actor's Life, A Survival Guide. And uh, listener and avid emailer of the show, Leslie Martin, uh, found a snippet where Jenna discusses the contents of the phone call to her mother at the end of Casino Night. We recently talked about this, of course, because we just started season three, and we were speculating what what she might have been saying or what the conversation to her mom might have entailed. And so this is a snippet from her book. Katie, would you like to read this snippet? Sure thing. Um, I'm actually really excited to read this because my book came in the mail yesterday. Uh, As an office fanatic and an actor myself, I kind of had to have this book, so I'm excited to read it. Here is uh, a snippet from the book. When he walked away, I felt completely transported into a new reality. I was Pam. I was talking with my mother and my heart was breaking, writes Fisher. I spoke into the phone, telling her I was in love with Jim, but I couldn't confess my feelings to him. Suddenly, Jim walked in the door. I turned and I saw him and my heart felt like it might burst out of my chest. I wanted so much to tell him how I felt, but before I could, he kissed me. It was perfect. So we have an answer. Um, She was talking to her mother about how she was in love with Jim. So when she says, I don't know. I think I am. There we there it is. We know now. I hoped it was that. I'm so glad it's that. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Uh, I, I love these sort of, not, it's not a tell-all. It's not like this book's all about the office, but you know there's got to be some good details like this throughout the book. Uh, like uh, Dwayne, or not Dwayne, goodness, uh, Rain Wilson's, I combined his character and his real name, uh, <laughs> his book, uh, The Bassoon King, that is about his own upbringing and life and early career, uh, also had a full chapter dedicated to The Office. And honestly, it was the best part of the book. So I- I'm looking forward to hopefully more of these. I still need to go back and read Mindy Kaling's, um, but I'll definitely be reading Jenna's at some point. And Jenna's foreword is written by Steve Carell. Um, I haven't read any of the book yet except for the forward, but it was nice to have a bit of him in there as well. For sure. Now we did get an email from a listener. Would you like to tell us about that, Katie? Sure. We got an email this afternoon, actually, from Jim Meyer with a fun fan theory about, um, we had talked a, a few episodes earlier about whether Jim or Pam started first at the office. And we couldn't really figure out what happened, who started first, but Jim has a fun uh, theory about it. However, it does have some slight spoilers for the future, so hopefully when we get to that part, we can bring it back up. Um, So we won't go into it here, but thank you so much, Jim, for emailing. We love getting emails like that, especially with uh, input and and theories and stuff. So thank you so much, and we encourage others to keep reaching out. Well, let's go ahead and move into our first episode discussion, which is over episode seven of season three, Branch Closing. 
Branch Closing aired on November 9th, 2006. It was directed by Tucker Gates and written by Michael Schur. Dunder Mifflin Scranton is closing, or is it? Jan tells Michael that some of his employees will be transferred to the Stamford branch, and some will get severance packages, with Michael unfortunately being one of the latter. Michael lets the news slip to his employees, with some panicking and some embracing their fate with open arms. Not willing to accept his own fate, though, Michael takes Dwight to company CFO David Wallace's house in order to give him a piece of his mind and stop Scranton from closing. However, at Stanford, branch manager Josh has accepted a new position at Staples, throwing a wrench in corporate's restructuring plan and leaving the fate of Stanford branch in the hands of none other than Michael Scott. Yeah, another kind of heavy episode. I feel like we've been on a string of darker episodes, and this is certainly one, especially in the first probably half of the episode where we believe that um, Scranton is closing. And it kind of leaves the fate of the show in limbo until we learn that, no, it's actually Stanford. Right. Starting off, when Jan first walks into the door, Michael can't stop being Michael long enough for Jan to tell him the bad news. And at first, he sort of doesn't believe it, or he doesn't really know what she's saying. And then she says the board has voted to uh, close the Scranton branch. And he says, on whom's authority? And she says, the boards. <laughs> um, and then when he inquires whether he's one of the, the small number of people who are being transferred, or whether he's one of the people who's being let go with a severance package, uh, Jan says, you know, we haven't made final decisions about personnel yet, but you're a severance package person. And Michael just collapses onto his desk and everybody in the outside area is staring in hearing him crying because he's not subtle at all. And uh, everybody starts to wonder what what's happening because he's just not handling it well. And in that same conversation with Jan, he then, of course, because it's Jan, turns it on to her and makes it personal and says, don't do this to me. Don't hurt me like I hurt you. As if, A, this was Jan's doing at all. She actually did seem really remorseful. She said, I don't, I don't love telling you this news. I'm sorry that this is happening to you. But Michael, of course, thinks that this is some sort of lover's revenge and that she's doing this to him. Right. He, he starts crying first. Then he says he doesn't get it. Then when Jan says it's not about numbers, but about talent, he says, oh, well, what about what's so special about Josh? He's the king of the the local idiot. I don't remember exactly what he says, but he, he makes fun of Josh and then he blames it on how he hurt Jan. He says, don't hurt me like I hurt you. <laughs> uh, it, that's not what it's about at all. Um, and he's asked to use discretion in regards to telling his employees because nothing's official yet. But Michael, as we know, is the least subtle person in the world. And so he starts taking like nostalgia trips around the office. And when anybody starts taking nostalgia trips, there's a reason behind that. He's saying stuff like pictures, memories. He picks up Stanley's daughter's picture off his desk and says, oh, they grow up so fast, don't they? And he tells Dwight to do his work while he still can't. Like, stupid stuff like this. Like, if you're going to, if you're trying to exercise discretion, don't do anything Michael does in (laughs) this first part of the episode where he's walking around just being cryptic. And I think most people aren't necessarily thinking anything of it, uh, or at least aren't asking any questions, but Pam does. She asks Michael what Jan was here for. Uh, Michael says nothing. She was just checking in. And I can't tell you. (laughs) Um, And so 
duh, she was here for a reason. And Pam kind of presses and Michael says, what difference does it make? We're all going to be gone in a couple of weeks anyway. Which, okay, that's it. You know, you've, you've let the cat out of the bag and um, Pam's smart and she's not going to just take that lying down. So uh, he kind of gives it away before he then actually does give it away just a few scenes later where he uh, he tells him. It's funny, he has a talking head where he says, well, this is it. I've got to put on a brave face and be their leader. That's the only thing to do. He goes out there and he, he spills the beans and tells everybody that the branch is closing and he doesn't know whether they're still going to have jobs or not. And then he, he has this fantastic, super stressed face where he like bites into his lip <laughs> and he, he it's like the ultimate cringe, like, oh, I can't believe this is happening to me. And if that's his idea of a brave face, he's doing a pretty spectacular job of failing. Um, but then after all of this, he, he, he decides, no, I'm not going to go down without a fight. I'm not going to take this laying down. I'm going to go give David Wallace a piece of my mind. He takes Dwight with him as backup, which Pam says, oh, good. You're taking Dwight with you. (laughs) Real sarcastic. Um, and he, he, he announces that they're about to go on this trip to Wallace's house. Uh, by saying, some of you may have heard some rumors about the branch closing, as if he didn't announce it to them earlier. It's, he's just so clueless in so many ways. But I mean, I, what I do admire about him through this is that his outrage is, yes, out of fear for his own job, but also out of fear for these other people's jobs. Earlier, he has a talking head about how people like Stanley and Phyllis and Kevin don't grow on trees or on farms. He says, if there's a a farm where these people just sprout up from the ground, you show me that farm. (laughs) Uh, He he even goes down to the warehouse and uh, checks on them, tells them that he's sorry that this is happening. And uh, he's informed that actually Bob Vance bought out the warehouse. So all the warehouse guys are all right. And even though Michael is down there to you know, kind of check on them. He does seem a little bit bummed that they're all fine because they all have jobs again. And now it's just the upstairs people that are scrambling. And, uh, but he does, I think, generally care a lot for, um, the job security of the people he works with. I mean, he considers them as family. So of course he's, he's going to be more, just as worried about them as he is about himself. And he and Dwight go to David Wallace's home address. It wasn't the initial plan to go to his home, but they find out that he's not at work. And so, of course, Dwight knows David's home address. Uh, If he knows what stores Jan likes to shop at, I'm not at all surprised by the fact that he knows where David Wallace lives. And part of this reason is because he says uh, he's got David on a Christmas card list. So if they ever do actually meet, they'll have something to talk about because he's been receiving Christmas cards. That's one way to do it, I suppose. Um, But while the two of them are waiting, uh, Michael asks Dwight what some of his top 10 or favorite Dunder Mifflin memories are. Um, And Dwight says, you know, like the time you hazed me on my first day with the fire extinguisher and our basketball game. And he he mentions a couple others, but then he ends with a a very serious one. He says, when you took me to the hospital and told me you cared about me, Uh, he gets real for a second. And uh, Michael shies away because it's a little too schmaltzy for him. Um, And then he sort of cops out of his own question by saying, you know, I liked all of them. I loved them all, every single one of them. And then Dwight says, what about when Jan told you the branch was closing? (laughs) Uh, Not exactly what Michael meant. I think Dwight should have been able to surmise exactly what Michael meant. But 
Michael's beating himself up about this because when night falls and David Wallace still hasn't come home and he thinks they have failed because they've been ignoring their phones, he blames the branch's closure on himself. He says, I lost everyone their jobs. Nobody likes me anymore. I, I think that this is showing that Michael really is aware of his own shortcomings when he's not distracting himself with other things. It's true. And uh, he takes it really, really hard. And I mean, he, he once again kind of breaks down in front of David Wallace's house, um, who they never get the chance to confront. David never comes home um, and meets them. But it was one of my favorite scenes of the episode when um, they do get the call, I think when Dwight checks his voicemail probably, and hears that it's actually Stanford closing, not Scranton, and the joy in their eyes as if they did actually accomplish something just by standing outside of the CEO's house. But to Michael, he, he did affect change there. You know, he, he tried and he succeeded and he won them their jobs back. So I'm sure he's really proud of himself there. Yeah, he, he was so willing to accept the blame for the branch closing, but he was just as willing to accept the victory of success, whether it was him who saved the branch or not, uh, which we know it was not. And we can talk about that in just a moment. But uh, that, that was what happened with Michael and Dwight in this episode was they set out on this adventure to to get things to be fixed and they don't really fix it, but things turn out OK anyways. Um, now everybody else back at Dunder Mifflin, uh, there's mixed reactions, understandably. Roy says, you know, I don't want to work here without Pam. It'd be like loading trucks without any meaning. <laughs> so apparently Pam gives loading trucks meaning, uh, which is interesting. I, I, I kind of feel bad for Roy. Um, we've been pretty vocal in the past about how much we dislike him, but he's obviously turned over a new leaf. We don't know how much he's really changed, but on the outside, he seems to have changed quite a bit, and he's making a real effort to get Pam back into his life. And this, uh, the branch closing, would obviously stop that pursuit completely. And he says, you know, I, what, what would you do? And Pam says, well, I've still got that art school thing. He says, oh, yeah, you should totally do that. And she says, well, I, I already have been doing it for a little while now, so I won't really miss Dunder Mifflin. And I think he's a little hurt by that because ideally she would miss him at Dunder Mifflin, but she has no reason to. They were engaged for several years and he screwed things up and now they're not together anymore. Yeah. I wanted to ask you what, what you thought about that uh, interaction between Roy and Pam, because when Pam says, yeah, I actually already am going to art school. And Roy says something like, good. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really good that you're doing that and kind of stammers and just walks out of the office it seemed to me like he wasn't really happy that she was in art school or he wasn't happy that she was having the life she always wanted without him. I wasn't really sure why he was upset. Wanted to get your, your point of view on that. I think part of it might have been that he realized that that might have been almost uh, a last straw in their relationship because he was so discouraging towards her chasing something she was passionate about and Obviously, now that he's not really a part of her life anymore, she's free to pursue her own things. And she has been pursuing it successfully for a while. And he's not in her life enough to have known that, despite his efforts to try and get her back into his life. So I think that it's just him almost revealing his own, not insecurities, but he, he understands that he screwed up. And this was a reminder to him of how he ruined what they had 
not anything else. Right, that makes sense. We also get um, some different feedback from Ryan. Ryan at first was a little... A little sarcastic about the whole branch closure because he said, of course, this would happen today. I have all these business cards that came in today with this address, this phone number. So now these are going to go to waste. But later on, we see him kind of excited about the closure because he says, you know what? It kind of gives me an out with Kelly. And that's probably a good thing. We've kind of run our course. This is probably good. And it kind of gives him an out with Michael, too. <laughs> yeah, it does. He He hasn't really wanted to be a part of this office he hasn't wanted to be quote a guy here for a while and uh now he is he's hired full time he's sitting where jim used to sit you know he's he's a guy here and this closure might give him the freedom that he wants again but they're not closing so now he has to be stuck with kelly and the job and the permanence of a full-time job Poor Phyllis, once again, overestimates her relationship with her coworkers, like she did back in Conflict Resolution. She wants everyone to go out to lunch together as sort of last hurrah before the branch closes. And she goes over to accounting to, to collect money for them all to go out together. And Angela and Kevin start fighting over where to go. And so Phyllis is clearly upset. She looks like she's been crying. And she just, f- says, she just says, forget it, and walks away, uh, which is really sad. Again, I think it's just showing that Phyllis feels a lot more personal uh, connection at this point in the show to other people than they feel to her. Um, I think a lot of the people in Dunder Mifflin Scranton still think of each other as just co-workers at the moment. And it's funny, I actually had that same scene written down, but in the funny moments section, not because that was funny for Phyllis, but because it was funny to me that, you know, on this big eventful day possibly their last day working together they can't figure out a place to go eat lunch and they fight about it and they choose not to do it and it's like (laughs) suck it up eat somewhere enjoy each other's company possibly for the last time altogether. but they can't do that and it's just such a testament to the comedy of the show like that's exactly what they would do they they would fight about it and not go right but then shortly after jan shows up and says hey your jobs are safe and Kevin and Angela, who were just arguing about a place to eat, hug each other. And Phyllis hugs right. Stanley, who, who does look a little bit disappointed because Stanley was excited about uh, using the severance pay from probably getting let go. He is a little bit older um, to retire early and to travel with his wife. And so he was looking forward to have an excuse to stop working without just having to quit or to retire early on his own volition. Um, but he is a little bit disappointed uh, once they get that news. But uh, it's Stanley. He'll ride it out. Um, but speaking of the news getting flipped around, let's go back to Stamford. Uh, Andy is basically throwing a party. That's Granton is the one closing instead of Stamford. And he throws it in Jim's face. He says, ha ha, in your face. And Jim just says, well, I work here now. So it doesn't really affect me all that much. But I didn't realize how much of a scumbag Josh really was in previous viewings because I never thought about his little announcement to the rest of the Stanford branch in the context of a guy who knows that he's about to throw the giant wrench in the scenario. Because like I said, Andy and the rest of the, the Stanford people are partying together. They're cheering. They're, they're chanting Stanford. They're really excited that they're the ones who were triumphant in the, the downsizing wars. and. Josh says, hey, they're just rumors. 
nothing is definite. Congrats on getting your numbers up, but keep working until it's official. And he says, be professional. And then Jim approaches him and says, or, and asks about who from Scranton is coming. And Josh tells him, it's not something you need to worry about. And that you can tell there's a little bit of discomfort going on, but you don't really know anything until he announces to Jan, oh, by the way, I leveraged my position here into a senior management position at one of your competitors, Staples. And it's like, wow, I I just didn't think of applying that, like the aftermath to his statement before, where he knew he had already accepted this position and he didn't want to tell these people that were so happy in the moment that their jobs were about to go away because of something that he did. And for a bit of context, um, Josh is actually getting quite a promotion with this merger. So instead, really, of of the Scranton people, of of the few Scranton people that were going to come to Stamford, it was now going to be not Dunder Mifflin Stamford, but Dunder Mifflin Northeast, which Josh would be heading. He would be the general manager, so to speak, of that larger branch. Um, So that's quite a pay raise, quite a quite a promotion and he leveraged that position knowing he was going to get it into this staples position um which was also going to be a pretty big step up for jim as well because he was going to be josh's number two um at this larger branch so jan is pissed jan is very frustrated (laughs) (laughs) um which she seems to be a lot but this is a really really good reason to be frustrated uh Because, as she said, this whole restructuring was built around Josh being there. And Jim even says, in in a talking head, he says, say what you will about Michael Scott, but he would have never done that. Um, Right. I mean, because as unreliable as Michael may be every once in a while, or pretty often, let's be honest, um, he was always loyal. And generally what he did was in the interest of Dunder Mifflin. And here's Josh knowing that this whole restructuring, this company that is struggling financially, is having to close a branch and is restructuring largely around him. Like he's going to be put in charge of so much stuff and be entrusted with a lot of responsibility. And he uses it to leverage a different position. It's just, it's a scumbag thing to do, honestly. Uh, I mean, I understand a paycheck, but I, I don't know. I just don't understand that mindset where You've been with a company for so so long, and they were about to give you so much uh, of a of a promotion that you would abandon that for whatever else. I mean, maybe he's getting a significantly more or a significantly bigger chunk of change, but still, it's just so awful. And then I wanted to kind of piggyback on what you said about Jim asking who was going to go to Stanford. When we then learn that it's actually Stanford being shut down, Pam kind of foils that and asks the same thing. She says, is anybody coming back to Scranton? I mean, is anybody coming to Scranton? (laughs) Right, that Freudian slip. Right. I just can't imagine this roller coaster that Jim is on because he just got settled in Stanford. He's been there a couple of months. He's moving on. He's apparently showing interest in Karen and she's showing interest back. And he was getting comfortable in this new place, in this new job with these new people. And now he might have to go back to Scranton, where 
the last thing that happened to him there was getting denied by a woman that he was very much in love with um, after they kissed. Like, it wasn't like she didn't reciprocate feelings. It was that she did reciprocate feelings and turned her back on him anyways. I mean, that's, that's tough. And now he's having to face going back to that. And Karen is also unsure whether she's going to be transferred or whether she's going to be let go. She doesn't know. Uh, she's kind of hoping she is going to go to Scranton, especially if Jim is, because she admits at a, in a talking head at the end that she's kind of into him. Um, and he questions her about it. He says, you really want to move to Scranton? New York is 45 minutes away. If I were you, I would go there. Ignore Scranton. You don't want to go there. That's uh, uh, just not a good place to live. And she's kind of bummed because it almost feels like he's trying to push her away and try and put them in different places. Uh, but when Jim has molded over the course of the episode and decides, you know, I've got to got to face this and it's a good job and it's just the next adventure, I suppose. Uh, he tells her, you know, Scranton's not that bad and you should go if they offer you the position. And she's very excited because, like I said, she is interested. And it's the first time she actually admits it out loud that she is interested in Jim. And they, they're getting ready to go back. And of course, it should be noted or at least reinforced that she does not yet say this to Jim. She says this in a talking head and she says... Right. That she doesn't know if Jim is into her, but I'm into him. Um, yeah, just keeping that in the back of your mind for now. And, you know, Pam back at Scranton had said earlier that she'd be okay with moving on. She'd be okay with her job here at Dunder Mifflin ending this way. She always imagined like slapping somebody and walking out, but this was okay too. And then with Stanford being the one shut down instead and the possibility of Jim coming back, she knows that that gives her new reasons to stay because we've seen over the past episode or two, ever since they had a conversation over the phone at the end of initiation, they had the conversation for three hours at the end of the night. It was the first time they talked in forever. And then in Diwali, she texts him during the, the celebration, or we assume that she texts him just the way things were cut and, uh, what was implied by the editing. And so maybe Pam is starting to reconsider Jim or uh, just re-pursue Jim now that Roy isn't a romantic part of her life. It's interesting. And Roy goes back to her and says, you know, it, I'm glad that you're still going to be working here. And she doesn't reciprocate in the way he wants. She says, yeah, it's just, I'm just, it's just nice that I won't have to look for a new job says, yeah, right. And again, he's disappointed because he wanted her to say, yeah, I'm glad you're still working here too, or I'm still working here with you or something to that effect. And Roy's still not getting what he wants. Yeah, I think he just wanted some kind of hint from her that she's glad to see him too. Um, and she never gives him that. I, I mean, not until this point. She just is, is staying strong in her decision, which I really... <laughs> I appreciate, and I'm sure you do too, given our our feelings about Roy. Um, she doesn't budge, which has got to be hard for her because they were engaged. And even if it's a bad relationship, I feel like, you know, you have so much time invested in that that it could be tempting to just, oh, you know, he's he's changed. Maybe he's really changed. Maybe he's a good guy now, but she doesn't budge. 
Not at all. Uh, any other character moments? Or are we ready to move on to the funny stuff? I think I'm ready to move on. Okay. Well, starting off with a fantastic cold open where Jim is sending Dwight faxes from himself from the future. <laughs> and he, he says he stole a box of Dwight stationery before he left Scranton. And this is really the only contact he has with the Scranton branch anymore, aside from, aside from like fantasy sports with Kevin. Uh, but he sends in this cold open a fax to Dwight saying at 8 a.m. somebody poisons the coffee. Await further details later. And Dwight looks up from the fax, who, which he assumes is from himself from the future because Dwight's the kind of guy to believe stuff like that. And he sees Stanley holding his mug of coffee and he sprints across the room and slaps it out of Stanley's hand. <laughs> and Stanley looks livid. And Dwight says, don't worry, you'll thank me later. <laughs> it's such a great opening. One of my favorite moments that I honestly had not even noticed until this rewatch was, um, so Creed has been subtly selling off his, well, the office's equipment during the day when he thought that Scranton was closing. Um, Just strangers would come in and offer him money for, you know, a printer here or a a monitor there. And um, so that's kind of happening throughout the episode. And then when we learn that Stanford's the one closing... Meredith passes Creed and says, hey, Creed, congratulations, meaning congrats on, you know, being able to keep your job. And Creed says, thank you. I made like 1200 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so uh, this is a great Creed moment. And uh, then we've got Kevin uh, at the very start of the episode while Michael is freaking out in his office and everyone's trying to figure out what's going on. Kevin comes over to Pam and says, hey, what are they talking about? And she says, I don't know, Kevin, because nobody knows. He says, is it serious? And again, I don't know, Kevin. He says, you call me if you find out anything. And he's being like real buddy-buddy with her. He does the, the phone signal with his hand. Uh, and she just looks at him and says, yeah, you got it, buddy. Like, I, I will do that just for you. <laughs> it's just a, a silly moment where Kevin is, I don't know. It's, it's not like he's hitting on Pam. It's like he's pretending their friendship is more than it really is at this point. I love when Kelly asks Pam to sign her company directory, like you're in middle school signing yearbooks or something. And uh, Pam just writes, well, first she says, really? You want me to do that? And Kelly kind of stares at her. and, Oh, great. Okay, I'll sign. And so she writes, <laughs> oh, what does she write? I think it's just like best wishes or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it was something really simple. It was like, you know, best wishes, love Pam or something like that. And Kelly says, that's it? That's all you're going to write? And so Pam adds a, a P.S. What a crazy and wild ride it's been or whatever. And, you know, has to write this whole long faux sentimental thing because uh, Kelly's standing there watching her sign her, quote, yearbook. <laughs> uh, while Dwight and Michael are at David Wallace's house, Dwight starts digging through his trash. He says, you can find a lot, find out a lot about a guy from his trash. He finds his satellite TV bill and says, oh, obviously he's rich, which is of course, a joke about how expensive TV plans are nowadays. And then he finds coffee grounds and he says, uh, was he just enjoying a, a hot beverage? Or could he be disguising the scent of cocaine from drug sniffing dogs? It's a nice house, <laughs> which is, it's just such a ridiculous <laughs> thing. But it's so, so Dwight where he, he's just making things, you know, it's like he, he's doing his research on Google, like we see a little bit of in the next episode where he's trying to find out about, uh, these new Stanford workers and 
he he just bases things off of what he sees on Google Images, which is not a way to actually research anybody, but it's the way Dwight does, does things. I actually had that same digging through trash one as well, but it's funny because I, I saw it from a slightly different way. Um, the fo- the uh, cable bill one, when Dwight says, oh, it's his cable bill, so clearly he's rich, and then the camera kind of pans out and like does a little sweep of the house they're standing outside of this mansion with like (laughs) pillars and a gated driveway and like it's beautiful like yeah he's rich (laughs) we know right you don't have to dig through his trash (laughs) right you could get that without having to find a satellite tv bill (laughs) (laughs) he's also ceo of a company and he lives in the northeast close to close to new york city and owns a mansion yeah right he's rich (laughs) (laughs) Then Meredith has this sort of through line through this episode where she first goes up to Michael and says, you know, did we ever make a deal several years ago where we'd sleep together on the last day of work? And Michael is just sort of grossed out. He says, no, that, that wasn't me. And she's, oh, really? Not you? Okay. And it, it goes on for a little while. We, we don't hear from her. And then all of a sudden she goes up to Toby. And maybe she's even gone up to others in the office with the same inquiry uh where she's uh she says hey was it you do you remember hearing any rumors about me and somebody else in the office something sexual uh toby says no um (laughs) it just seems to me like a bad idea to go to your hr rep and ask about rumors of promises of sexual activity with coworkers. just just saying just a Uh, little (laughs) (laughs) not really the best idea that could be something that gets you in trouble with corporate and get you fired honestly but meredith doesn't care all that much and toby doesn't appear to either we have another michael scott ringtone um so far we've had i guess just the one memorable one we had mumbo number five in the fire um Mm -hmm. a while back and now we have my humps by the black eyed peas which was another Black Eyed Peas reference. He tried to reference them in Casino Night. And what did he call them? The uh, Black Eyed Crows, I think. Yeah, something like that. Um, so he's a Black Eyed Peas fan. And we have one of those, you know, early 2000s, like um, MIDI keyboard recordings, like a, a, a ringtone, um, which was a fun throwback. And especially with Black Eyed Peas. And then lastly, for me, at least, is Angela shows a little bit more evidence of her having a crush on Roy. Uh, Roy comes up and it's when he first hears the news that the branch is closing. And Angela says, oh, don't worry, you're going to be fine. You'll land on your feet. And Kevin is just in the background sort of chortling (laughs) her fawning over him. And she says, oh, grow up. And it's just a funny moment because it's not the first time we've seen her sort of making goo goo eyes at Roy. Okay, so for this episode, I have our discussion topic today. If you were to lose your job tomorrow, what would you do? Hmm, let's see. If I lost my job that I've only had for two, three (laughs) months at this point tomorrow, that'd be kind of sad. But uh, honestly, as much as I've always wanted to be a, a music teacher, a band director, orchestra director, whatever. That's been the goal since I was in eighth grade. Uh, but I've always also sort of toyed with the idea, or at least in the last couple of years, of something to do with broadcasting or uh, maybe just film review in general, whether that's written or spoken word. I don't know. I, I, I think I'm good at it and I enjoy doing it. And 
it's not like there's ever not going to be movies to talk about. So that's something I've, I've toyed with, but honestly, I'm happy where I'm at right now. And I hope I stay here for a little while. <laughs> well, that makes a lot of sense. Like knowing you and knowing your hobbies and the fact that we are doing a podcast right now makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, hopefully you don't have to, you know, switch jobs, but that would be a right. <laughs> what about you? I don't know. Um, I really don't. I think, okay, so right now I'm kind of trying to start a little photography business. It's it's going to be really, really low key right now. It's not really a uh, business right now. It's more of a hobby. But if I was really crunched for, you know, employment, I think I would really like to make that a career. However, that does take um, skill and time. So until then, honestly, I don't know. Um, I always kind of wanted to get into um or when I was a kid I wanted to be a reporter uh-huh. or a or a journalist rather um so I think I might want to try that but again everything that I like takes a lot of um they're all very liberal fields I think you know music acting uh-huh. all of the all of the arts so all of those are fairly unstable jobs so I have no idea <laughs> You'd figure it out. You'd land on your feet. <laughs> I'd figure something out. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and go into our next episode discussion, which is episode eight of season three, The Merger. It aired on November 16th of 2006, which was just a couple days ago, the 11th anniversary, uh, directed by Ken Weddingham and written by Brent Forrester. So the Stamford branch has now closed and we have some new faces at Dender Mifflin Scranton. We have Karen, Andy, Toby, Martin, and Hannah, who have all joined the Scranton office, and of course, Jim has returned. Michael has a whole welcome day planned for the new people, including a meet-and-greet breakfast, where only the new people get to eat, gift bags for the new people, and an event where he puts the new people up on a table so that they know that we are not above them. Tensions are high, as new office mates are learning how to get along with each other, spending the first day together, and we even lose people on the first day of the merger we also learn that jim is dating again and is in in and is in a relationship with karen so not a whole lot happens this episode i feel like it's it's a lot of mood i want to say it's it's a lot of getting to know the new people and getting to um see how they interact together i just now have this thought this episode was almost like a pilot 2.0 because it was a new set of characters being introduced to Michael Scott for the first time. And unlike, unlike the original pilot where it was a very different Michael than was presented from season two onwards, this is the Michael that we've been getting accustomed to for more than a season. Now Um, he thinks of the first day with the Stanford employees as a performance. We literally see him at certain points in his office, rehearsing lines off of three by five note cards. And he decides to put together his own orientation presentation rather than following corporate orientation policy. It's a lot of work that he's putting into it. He's really trying to make an impression. And unfortunately, it doesn't all go the way he wanted. Um, he tries, he thinks of the, the branch as a family. And he thinks, therefore, of himself as their father. And so he's sipping out of his mug that says world's best boss. And he says, is might as well just say world's best dad, um, which I just thought was maybe a way of Michael showing how much he desperately wants a family of his own. 
Yeah, that's true. And and we see evidence of that kind of sprinkled in throughout the the series so far. Um, one thing I do respect about Michael in this episode is that he's right. They do need something to unite them. I mean, whether that's time or an event or, you know, hating the lunch lady, as it were, as he says, <laughs> um, they, they will need to find something that brings them together. However, he kind of forces that with the whole slashing of the tires and that's the wrong thing to do. <laughs> but he's right that, um, that they needed somebody kind of to hate to bond over he tried to pin that on Vance Refrigeration. Turns out they kind of hated him and bonded <laughs> over that. Um, but it worked. So he had the right idea. I think he just executed it to- totally incorrectly. I'm totally surprised by that. <laughs> uh, it's, 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 you know, it's out of his character, but... <laughs> yeah. It, as, as the new employees from Stanford first start showing up, he treats Hannah, we know her name now, the, the woman with the newborn, uh, more and Tony more or less normally. Uh, but when Karen first walks in, he sort of falls into his Michael trying to impress an attractive woman stick. And he does this Martian robot bit where he's like, take me to your leader. Oh wait, I am your leader. And she says, are, are you trying to be a robot or are you trying to be a Martian? Pick one. And he makes this awful comment. He says, wow, you're rather exotic looking. Was your dad a GI? And so he's basically asking if her dad went around having sex with locals while on tour in the military. That, that's not something you ask somebody. <laughs> it's the worst. And then when Martin shows up, a uh, uh, black guy, the new black employee from Stanford, he makes a slave joke. Michael makes a slave joke in front of a black guy. And he, he thankfully catches himself right away and just sort of stutters and moves on. And Martin is left making this face but he doesn't say anything about it but michael is just he he tries so hard in this episode and he still makes missteps and i I also thought it was worth pointing out that he keeps referring to these new employees as guests uh give the guests their goodie baskets only guests can eat the food that's in the conference room but they're not guests it's not like they're here for a temporary stay this is their new reality this is their new job and their new workplace and they're they're going to be there. They're not guests. And so in trying to accommodate these new people, he's actually creating a further divide by setting them apart as new people. And even Karen does say that when he puts all the new people up on the table um, to prove that we are not above you, Karen says, well, shouldn't we be equals? Shouldn't you know we all be on the same level here? Um. Because Michael's just going so out of his way to make sure that they feel valued, which, okay, that's nice. That's, you know, it's it's a good idea to welcome them to the office, but they're not guests. They are now employees of this branch, and that's not how it works. Right. When Karen says, shouldn't we all be equals? Michael says, no, not today. <laughs> and he's right. so committed to this demonstration of having the new employees on the table above everybody else that he tries to force Tony, uh, the guy that Dwight actually preemptively suggested he fire as a way to consolidate power, uh, onto the table. And Tony's a bit of a heavier guy. It's a struggle for him. And he and Michael and Dwight get behind him and really just sh- sort of shove up on his rear end. And Tony just 
he decides it's been enough. He's been, Michael's been grating on him all day and this was just the last straw and he decides he has to quit. And he says, it's just your management style. I, I, we don't mix. And Michael is so offended by this notion that his management style is what scared him off that he fires him instead, which is so stupid as Jan points out, because now they have to pay him severance. Whereas if he just quit and he had let him quit, then the company wouldn't owe him a dime. Well, so when Tony's trying to quit, um, Michael's kind of questioning him. And yeah, Tony says, like, it's just your management style. We just don't mesh. And then Michael says, well, did you think Lazy's, well, did you think Lazy Scranton was funny? Which was the video, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a second. It was his, <laughs> his uh, orientation video. He says, do you think Lazy Scranton was funny? And Tony says, no, was it supposed to be funny? And that's when Michael says, you know what? You're fired because this was the really cringy video that Michael put together that he was so proud of and Tony just was not amused by it at all. <laughs> not at all. Um, we get a little bit more glimpse into Michael's background as well. He, uh, things are not going well, obviously. He's fired Tony. Things are going awfully as far as people getting along with each other. And he says, you know, things, this is going to have to be just like when my mom moved in with my stepdad, Jeff. Things were chaotic, and he saw it as his job to fix it. Um, so we're getting a little bit of a glimpse into Michael's previous home life and his upbringing. His, we knew they, his, his parents were divorced because he had mentioned Jeff before. At least I thought he had, maybe. I might be thinking future seasons, to be honest. But anyways, we know that now. Um, and then he further gl gives a glimpse into his character after he's tried to get everybody to turn against Vance Refrigeration and it instead turns everybody together against him. He says, you know, sometimes you just need to hate the lunch lady, but by the end of fourth grade, you like the lunch lady anyways. And he says, you know, by the end of fourth grade, the lunch lady was the person I hung out with the most. And so that goes back to Fundle Bundle again, where he says, you know, I wish I had a hundred kids so that they could all be my friend and nobody could say no to being my friend. Michael Scott was a lonely kid and his home life wasn't that great. His parents were divorced and he didn't like his stepdad very much. He's gone through a lot and this is him trying to avoid having a work family that's as broken or as alone as his home family is. Yeah, and this may be a little off topic, but it's it's interesting you know, we're, we're in our twenties and when you're a kid, you know, kids are either cool or they're annoying or they're weird, you know, and, and then when you grow up and, and you see why adults are the way they are because of their childhoods, it's like, yeah, Michael Scott was this super lonely guy. I mean, he had a or really lonely kid and he, he had a pretty lonely childhood. And so that kind of turned him into the guy he is today. And um, so now whenever I meet somebody as an adult, you got to wonder what was their childhood like? I I'm always curious because Michael Scott here is perfect evidence of that, that being a lonely kid turns you into this guy that just has to make everybody love him. And uh, he really struggles with that. He does. It it's pretty sad. Um, Dwight has this power struggle with Andy this whole episode. Uh, Andy first shows up and he says, you know, I'm going to be the number two guy here in six weeks. 
because I'm going to win the boss over through repetition, through personality mirroring, never breaking off a handshake. And sure enough, after he meets Michael and brown noses super hard, Michael has his own talking head about how much he likes Andy. And, you know, before Andy left Stanford as they were packing their things away, he threatens to destroy Jim if he crosses him at Scranton. And now Dwight is clearly the one who's going to struggle with Andy the most uh, because he senses that Andy is sucking up to Michael. And Dwight has spent years sucking up to Michael and doesn't want somebody to out suck up Michael. Um, And so he gets into this argument with Michael. He says, whose whose title is higher? Is it assistant regional manager? Is it regional director in charge of sales? Then who gets paid more? Michael is actually pretty diplomatic about it and says, it's not about more or less. It's just different. It's such a a PC kind of answer. (laughs) Right. Your your pay is not more or less. They're just different, which (laughs) no, different pay means better pay. (laughs) Right. Or worse pay. Dwight is clearly so jealous of of Andy in this episode, and um, but I think it's interesting timing because Michael has seemed to be more and more distant to Dwight recently, and you know, calling him an idiot like he always loves to do, and sometimes they seem to be really close, like in the last episode when they went to David Wallace's house, uh, but sometimes they're really, really not. So I think Dwight is just sort of clinging on to uh, this relationship in in hopes that he'll stay Michael's buddy, but Andy has come in and Michael really likes him. So Dwight is just getting really clingy. When the, the who's number two argument is shut down, when Jan finally tells Michael, no, Jim is the number two because he's the only one who's worked with both groups. And so Michael calls all three of them, uh, Dwight, Jim and Andy into his office and says, so after a great deal of thought and introspective shun, I have decided to make Jim my new number two. Like it was his decision to make Jim number two. It wasn't, but whatever. And Dwight says, you know, even if if he even wants it, it doesn't come with a pay raise because for Dwight, assistant regional manager was a fake job and didn't come with a pay raise. But for Jim, it's a real job. So it does come with a pay raise. And so Jim says, well, it does actually. So (laughs) poor Dwight. Speaking of Jim, Ryan, as I as I mentioned a little bit earlier, Ryan is now sitting at Jim's old desk. And when Jim comes in for the first uh, time of the day, he comes in, automatically goes to his old desk, throws his bag down, and Ryan comes in. Hey, Jim, how you doing? And they, you know, shake hands. And um, Ryan just sort of claims the desk, and and Jim says, "Oh, I'm sorry. Are you sitting here now?" And there's a bit of a power struggle for the desk. Who's going to get it? And Ryan kind of half-heartedly offers it to Jim, and Ryan ends up getting the desk. Um, and then he has a talking head. He says, yeah, yeah, Jim's a nice guy. That's why I got the desk. So we're getting a little bit um, a little bit more of Ryan's character now. I think now that he is a permanent employee, he's a full-time employee, he's a salesman, I think we're going to see a lot more of his... Uh, decision to be a guy in the office now you know he's in it Mm -hmm. he's gonna go for it Uh, also speaking of jim he's asked by the camera crew in a talking head where he stands with pam and he says where i stand with pam and he says we're friends and uh that's it and so that's it that's all he really sees at this point um 
they're still getting along great. They still have a couple of classic Jim Pan moments. Uh, in the conference room meeting that Michael calls as orientation for everybody, he and Pam sit next to each other and they talk a bit, but then he reaches behind him and takes a piece of gum from Karen and Pam sort of side eyes and recognizes this. And then later, Karen is recording her voicemail message and he walks over to her and makes her record it in a faux Italian accent to match the Italian sounding last name, Filippelli. And then all this sort of culminates in the end of the day when he approaches Pam in the parking lot and says, you know, I'm sorry if things are a little weird today. And I just wanted to let you know that I've started seeing someone. And Pam sort of says, hey, you can you can do what you want. It's kind of cold. It's not it's not mean, but it is a little cold. She says, we'll always be friends. And Jim sort of looks a little not put out, maybe a little bit astounded. Like once again, he's misinterpreted their friendship and misinterpreted signs from Pam all throughout the day. Um, she had asked him at one point earlier in the day, would you like to go out and get some coffee and catch up a little bit sometime? And he turns her down. He says, maybe sometime, but not today. I'm still sort of settling in. And then at the end of the workday, Karen calls him and asks him out to a drink after work, and he accepts. And so he's finally admitting interest in Karen and pursuing it and really just, again, trying to move on from Pam and not push her away, but be pretty clear to her that he's moved on. I think a lot of it is, and of course, I'm cheating because I've seen the whole show, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wonder. Um, but I think he's not letting himself get close to Pam because he's been down that road. She's turned him down. You know, yeah, he could go grab coffee with her. He'd probably love to go chat with her and, and, and catch up. But what's that going to be? You know, he's just going to fall back in love with her and he can't do that again. So he's going out with Karen instead. And that's got to be really tricky because now his new girlfriend and his Pam, his love is you know three feet behind him at the office and he can't really get to know Pam again he can't really be her best friend again because he can't fall back in love with her so that's got to be a tight spot and their friendship I think is going to be sacrificed a little bit because if he gets back to being her best friend he's going to fall back in love with her which is a sad contrast to how Pam clearly feels about him returning because she's very excited at the start of the episode that Jim is coming back. She arrives at work with food for the new people and Michael makes this offensive joke about how she should, she should set it up as if she's trying to impress an older gentleman who is out of her league and she sort of just smiles and ignores him. Like She could have lingered on that and been offended, but instead she's happy that she's preparing for Jim to get back. She tries to pass it off as more excited to meet the new people and Jim coming back is just a small side bonus, but we can read her pretty transparently. Uh, but as the day goes by, she's still glad to have Jim back, but she's also aware of how things aren't the same and probably won't be the same as they used to be. Uh, and at first it's little things like when they, when, when Jim gets a different drink from the vending machine, it used to be grape soda. Now it's bottled water. And there's this, this awkward tension uh, there that comes from how they ended things before he left. Yes, they've talked once or twice since then, but this is their first time really face-to-face -face since they kissed and Pam turned him down in favor of Roy. Um, it's, it, it's 
uh, it's upsetting a little bit because we we like Pam, we like Jim, we liked the thought of them together in the first couple of seasons, and now it seems like that's not really a possibility anymore. And you're right. There's so much about this episode that's almost right. Jim is almost in the right desk. You know, he's he's back where he was, but his back is now to Pam. And he's back in the office, but he's not drinking the same things he used to. And he sits next to Pam in the conference room meetings, but he and Karen have seemingly this now, this gum tradition. And it's like, something's just not quite right. When they go down to the parking lot to see Michael's Vance refrigeration scheme, she and Jim used to would have walked down together, but he walks out with Karen instead. And then when they're on their way back up, she sees Karen sort of affectionately rubbing Jim's back and turns and looks at the camera like, did you see that too? Man, that sucks. Um, It's just things are different. And Pam is having to learn to accept that. So I already mentioned the conflict, the power struggle that Dwight and Andy had between each other. But Andy also starts to get a little further under Dwight's skin by unknowingly starting to try to win over Angela. He's currently sitting at Oscar's desk because Oscar is absent at the moment. I don't think we know the official reason why, even though I know, but I'm not, so I'm not going to say it right now. Uh, but Oscar's absent at the moment, and Andy is sitting at his desk. And so he puts on the uh, kitschy computer, or he puts on the kitschy cat computer background and tells Angela her smile is pretty and is trying to sort of win her over. And Dwight just sort of stares over from his desk and is obviously upset. Previously, we've seen Angela being jealous of Dwight with people like, uh, I almost said Mindy, like Kelly. Um, But this is the first time the tables have sort of been flipped and Dwight is starting to get a little bit jealous of Angela because Andy is giving her attention without knowing that, that Dwight and her are an item at the moment. We know Hannah by name for the first time. We mentioned her in a previous episode because in a deleted scene, um, she showed Jim a picture of her husband and baby, both naked in the bathtub. And Jim thought it was a little inappropriate. Uh, and she was sort of offended that he would think that seeing a naked picture of her husband with her naked baby would be appropriate. Uh, and she returns to at work inappropriateness by starting to pump breast milk in the open at the office. Now, I'm not opposed to breastfeeding in public, but I do think there's a little bit of a difference between breastfeeding an actual infant and breast pumping out in the open. And I think that a level of discretion needs to be exercised, frankly, and she's not exercising that discretion. And Angela obviously dislikes her for those decency reasons. She's sitting in her desk chair, just facing the majority of the office. She's not even like facing her computer. She's just facing out, shirt up. <laughs> like, and, you know, um, Creed, of course, is sitting right next to her and just staring at her and manages to get a photo of her breasts on his computer. Like, of course Creed would because he's Creed, but she shouldn't have probably been in that situation. He definitely shouldn't have taken a photo of it. But we have learned that Hannah has, I guess, a bit of um, a different level of modesty than most people think is normal. Yeah. 
yeah, we'll we'll leave that at that. Now, what about some uh, funny moments? I love this cold open. Um, super un- super unrelated to the rest of the episode, which most of them are, but this one's very unrelated. Um, Dwight is can, uh, Dwight is talking about how fast he is, how fast he is of a runner. So um, Pam decides to time Dwight running around the building. So they go downstairs, the two of them, except she isn't actually timing him. Her timer is a digital thermometer. And she's just standing out there letting Dwight run laps around the office building. And I think in his second lap, she says, you know, I should probably just go get some work done. And she just heads upstairs to let Dwight run around alone outside. Yeah, he he was making light of Toby's seven-minute mile because he ran a 5K or a marathon or something over the weekend. And Dwight first has this talking head where he says, I am fast. To give you a reference point, I'm somewhere between a snake and a mongoose. And a panther, <laughs> which I don't, I don't really have any sort of reference point to the speed of any of those, except for maybe a panther. Uh, but I, I guess I'll just take Dwight at his word that he's somewhere in between there. Uh, I don't know. Um, when Jim first shows up at the office after uh, first arriving from Stanford, uh, Dwight approaches him and says, fact, I am older. I am wiser. Do not mess with me. And Jim just starts staring at his forehead <laughs> rather than meeting his eye line and playing this sort of like psychological warfare game where Dwight is trying to get him to meet his eye. And Jim just always, always looking slightly higher than that. It's pretty funny. I promise we talk about it and we need to. The uh, Lazy Scranton orientation video, which is a knockoff of SNL's Lazy Sunday. So Lazy Sunday was an SNL skit from 2005 with. Chris Farnell and Andy Samberg, um, just talking about it, it was like, it was a rap video of just them talking about stuff they do when they're in New York on a lazy Sunday. Pretty funny, um, and of course this aired in two thousand six, so it was relevant. Um, but Michael's version of it, you know, of course it's about Scranton. It's not relevant to. I don't know. It it doesn't have a whole lot to do with the Lazy Sunday sketch, but he was so proud of it. And um, I had to say, I, I, I watched the Lazy Sunday video and they did a good job replicating the feel of it. So that was impressive. <laughs> um, but that was about as close as they got. Yeah. <laughs> I just love how amateur it is and how it's like poorly synced to the background audio and it, it's all the shots are so close up. And it, it, it's funny. It, it, it makes me laugh. And then Jim also says, you know, it kind of reminds me of the training video we got when I first joined here. Um, and uh, it cuts to a snippet of that video where Michael is like covered in sweat and he's parodying the Blair Witch Project. And he says, it's, it frightens me when people don't label their personal food. <laughs> it's so, <laughs> so over the top. It's so Michael. I love it. Um, more with Dwight. He has this confrontation, this final confrontation with Andy at the end of the episode. They have this ridiculous exchange of insults regarding uh, their cars, who's an idiot, and lots of it involves this fake coughing. So they like more than half of this conversation is coughed back and forth at each other because they're trying to it's not even that they're trying to be discreet. It's just that they're trying to I don't even know what they're trying to. I don't know how to describe it. They're just being stupid. 
<laughs> but they're coughing back and forth at each other, these insults, calling each other idiots. And Dwight at the end of it says, oh, I think I got the, the best of that interchange or whatever. <laughs> One of my favorite lines from this episode is from Phyllis when Karen has an unpleasant reaction to Phyllis's perfume. She says, oh, I, I must just be allergic. But she had said earlier that it smelled like a bad air freshener was plugged in somewhere. Um, and Phyllis gets super offended and says, excuse me, Bob Vance bought this perfume for me in Metropolitan <laughs> Orlando. It's made from real pine, <laughs> which just none of that sounds very appealing. <laughs> I don't know. No. Just It just sounds kind of cheap. And I don't know. It just You can just imagine that perfume. You can just smell it. It's excellent. I love how she justifies it by saying, Bob Vance bought this for me. Like right. because Bob <laughs> bought this and he has uh, the best taste of anybody I know, then that justifies me wearing this. I don't need your approval. Um, and Stanley has this talking head shortly thereafter saying, I don't I don't know what the deal is with these new people. I don't know who they think they are. I've been sitting across from Phyllis's stinky perfume for many, many years, and I've never said a word. <laughs> uh, so further conflict between them. Uh, I love, I love that Kevin like hides his jar of M and M's under his desk when the new employees start to arrive. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, and we get a deleted scene where Jim comes over and says hi to Kevin because he's been gone for a while. And Kevin says, "Hey Jim, the jar of M and M's is under my desk. If you want some, I'm hiding it from them." <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. I feel bad for Toby once again, not because of something Michael says to him, but because. Jim comes back and says hello to Toby as well. And Toby like holds up his fist, clearly trying to fist bump, but Jim just stares and doesn't really know what he's trying to do. Like, what's this for? What am I supposed to do with that? And then Toby just feels so bad for it and starts apologizing over and over again. Like it was the most uncool thing for him to do. And he feels bad about it. It was pretty funny. I felt bad for him there too. And I thought surely Jim would have known I can't tell if Jim was just messing with Toby and being like, oh, man, I, I don't know what that is. I don't you fist bump. But I don't know. I, I, I was hoping that was authentic and that Jim wasn't giving him a hard time because he made him feel pretty bad. I, I think it was authentic. I think it was Jim more not expecting it from Toby. It was probably something that Toby had never, ever done before. But because it had been a while since he'd seen Jim and maybe it had been a current trend or something, I don't remember. This was middle school remember or uh oh this yeah. was early high school at this point holy crap um <laughs> yeah. um yep. but it that might have been something that was popular at the moment and it it was just something toby picked up from kids or something i don't know but i, I do think jim was just like wow toby you've never done this before i don't know what to do with this um another introduction to jim kelly is excited to see him and says, I have so much to tell you. And then she talks about the Tom Cruise slash Katie Holmes and Brad Pitt slash Angelina Jolie babies. Uh, so she she sees her life in terms of what's happening in celebrity culture. It's not about what happened to her. It's about what happened in the world around me and to these people who I admire. Uh, pretty, pretty different for, well, not different for Kelly, but different than everybody else. And then uh, one last funny moment for me. I know I've got a few, uh, but this one just sort of made me cringe where Stanley looks over and Martin, the only other black employee 
uh, new at the branch, tries to sort of signal to him out of solidarity, like, you know, we're the only black people in the office. You and me, we're together. And Stanley just sort of rolls his eyes and <laughs> returns to his work, like completely shuts him down. And Martin just looks disappointed that uh, in this <laughs> world of new people, he can't even trust on the other black guy to uh, be a comfort. So we touched on one or two, but a couple other deleted scenes I wanted to mention. Um, one of my favorites was, so how Andy likes to give people nicknames, right? So Big Tuna is Jim because he ate a tuna sandwich one time on his first day of work. He gets that turned around on him. Um, Andy introduces himself to Kevin and Andy is wearing a shirt with a penguin on the pocket. And Kevin says, what's that on your shirt? And Andy says, oh, it's a penguin. And so Kevin starts calling him the penguin. Um, and Andy does not like it. He says, call me Andy or Andrew. So he's getting a little taste of his own medicine there, which is pretty funny. Yeah, that, that was pretty funny. Um, Pam comes up to Jim to talk and have fun because he faces away from her now. So they can't have those across the room conversations that they used to have. Um, and they, they have this fun little game where she starts, quote, introducing him to other people in the office, makes up a fake name for Meredith, et cetera. And then Ryan is sort of get fed up with it and poo poos on their fun and says, Hey guys, I'm trying to get work done. And Jim sort of signals for Pam to go away. So that's just another thing standing in their way. They can't have fun like they used to because one, he's facing away and two, Ryan is a lot less tolerant than Dwight is of their shenanigans. I actually had another Andy and Kevin one. Um, Andy being, you know, kind of the suck up right now. He's, he's, trying to be on everybody's good side, he asks Kevin if he's lost any weight. And Kevin almost lets it slide, except he says, wait a second, we've never met. How would you know if I lost weight? And Andy kind of covers it and says, you know, you just, you just seem like the kind of guy, you're, you're just walking with an air of somebody who's lost weight. You, you seem like a thinner man. And Kevin <laughs> loves that. And he says, you know who I really like is that Andy guy, which is exactly what Michael said before as well. So Andy's right. little um, plan of getting everyone to like him is, well, not everyone, but it's working to an extent. Uh, we get a return of Creed's mung beans. <laughs> Martin sits across from him and he, he gets a whiff as Creed is depositing them into his mouth. Uh, it, it's just a funny wordless return. Nothing's said. Uh, but we know that they smell like death, as per Creed earlier in the show. I love this magic trick. I, I say magic, quote, magic trick that Michael does, where he has Andy magically draw a king of hearts from his deck of cards. And it fits in with some wordplay that Michael's doing as part of his presentation. But then he, it, that, that on its own might have been impressive. Like, oh, cool. You were successful in completing your magic trick. Good job. You drew the king of hearts. But then he ruins the trick by revealing that all of the cards he's holding were king of hearts. It's like, come on, Michael, you're smarter. Uh, please, I know you're smarter. You have to be smarter than this. You just ruined your own magic trick. It's no longer a magic trick because all the cards you were holding were the same thing. There was almost a nice bonding moment between, Ke uh, between Karen and Meredith. Meredith is filling up her thermos in the break room and Karen walks in carrying the same thermos. They say, oh, that's funny. We have the same thermos. And Meredith, as just, I guess, a, a sign of goodwill, offers 
Karen some of her booze, which she's putting into her thermos. Uh, Karen politely declines. Meredith says, okay, but, you know, if you want it, just let me know. And Karen once again says, really, I'm fine. Thank you. Uh, almost a, a nice bonding moment between them, but Meredith is uh, being a little too bold too quickly, I guess. Yeah, Karen being introduced pretty early on to Meredith the alcoholic. <laughs> um <laughs> The last deleted scene I have to mention is it's actually an extended version of the scene where Michael, quote, picks Jim as his number two. And Dwight calls Andy out on his BS by saying the actual word BS in a cough, much like they do at the end of the episode. Michael says, come on, Dwight, we all heard that. You can't say that. Dwight plays dumb and Michael retaliates by saying the same thing by doing the same thing but he coughs that dwight is an idiot and then coughs that dwight is a jerk and dwight walks off with his feelings very obviously hurt so michael is adjusting to andy being the noon guy sucking up to him but he's used to dwight being around for a while and sucking up to him and is kind of tired of it so he's giving andy the unfair advantage here and dwight's clearly fighting a fight that he's on the losing end of. I think that's it for deleted scenes and for our discussion. Um, I believe you have our discussion topic for this episode. I do. I was just curious. Have you ever walked into a job or an organization or a class, like a school class on the first day and been overwhelmed almost to the point of quitting or maybe even just considering quitting? Well, not not so much, but the closest thing I could think of is maybe, I think I mentioned a while back that I used to be a temp for a little bit, um, and I did not like temping because essentially, so my temp jobs were mostly really short term, so I'd work, you know, a day or two here, a week maybe here, and you don't actually learn anything on those really short jobs. You're essentially just filling in for somebody who's sick or on vacation or whatever. And it's, it can be really stressful because you don't know anything about what you're doing. You don't know anybody's names. Um, and I was doing this one job where I was, a, I was a receptionist essentially, and they didn't explain anything to me. They didn't explain how the phone system worked or anything. They were apparently having a really crazy day and just didn't bother explaining anything to me. So I had no idea what I was supposed to be doing. And it was this, I, I don't even know what the office was. And they just sat me down at the desk and said, okay, uh, see you later. <laughs> and I just had Eesh. to sit there and uh, kind of try to figure out what I was supposed to be doing. Um, and I'm a pretty shy person in real life. I say in real life, like I'm, this, I'm, this is me, I'm real, but you know what I mean? <laughs> right. <laughs> like in, in person, I, I can be a little um, introverted. And so being a receptionist to begin with is not my cup of tea and not knowing what I'm supposed to be doing was horrible. And I just wanted to walk out. <laughs> what about you? Your experience sort of reminds me of substitute teaching. Uh, that's a whole other animal. I was never really overwhelmed yeah. with that, but it was a lot of uh, spend a day here, a couple days here, a week here, uh, all for these teachers that were just out for however long. So I, I understand a little bit of what you went through, but I, I'm, I was never put into just a completely unknown situation like that. Now, as for me, um, there was a class that I took, I think my junior year of college at Tech, uh, that was called Western Intellectual Traditions. It was an honors class uh, through the Honors College. And uh, on the very first day of class, we got a reading list that was probably 12 or more books deep. 
for a single semester class. And it was an almost one book a week basis. And none of it was light. It was stuff like the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Odyssey, Mm. the Canterbury Tales, Dante's Inferno, so on and so forth. So that was pretty overwhelming. There were multiple times during the semester where I considered quitting. Uh, I made it all the way through, though. Um, and then just one other example, uh, getting ready to, to, to teach this year was actually pretty overwhelming going through the training process because you go through school and they teach you how to teach and how to like know your content area and all that kind of stuff. And it's great. And then you get to teaching and all of a sudden it's like, here's all this administrative bull crap that's going to take up 90% of your job. And the other 10% is the stuff you learned in school. And so it was all this administrative stuff that they don't really prepare you for. And it was, like I said, pretty overwhelming, but not quite to the point where I felt like I needed to quit. And things are going fine now. I've sort of gotten into the groove of things. But it was it was a little bit of a rough start in those first couple of days of training because I was like, holy crap, I've got a lot of stuff I have to take care of. Oh, Yours actually reminded me of one more, it's short, um, of... I took German in college and, well, I took German and French, but I'm, this is my German class. I walk into German one, first day, freshman year, maybe sophomore year. But I, um, I walk in and I'm convinced I'm in the wrong classroom because this woman is only speaking German. Oof. And I'm supposed to be in German one. I've never taken, I don't know any words in German. And she keeps asking me questions in German. And I flat out say, I'm like, I'm supposed to be in German one. Am I in the right room? And she won't answer me in English. Turns out I was in the right room. She was just mean. Um, but <laughs> I was terrified that I was like in the wrong classroom and everyone else in the room just totally played along and had, you know, tried to, to keep up. And I was just convinced I was in like German four or something. I had no idea what was going on. Um, it's teaching so by immersion. Out, but. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think that is the end of the official 19th episode of An American Workplace. Contact for the show. You can find us at facebook.com slash workplace pod and at workplace pod on Twitter. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe to us on iTunes or on Apple Podcasts on your iOS device. And if you have any feedback or ideas, you can email workplacepod at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at ktlady623 or at facebook.com slash katie.white. And the best place to find me is at chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. Also, facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. And my other show, Cinescope, where we talk about the movies we love and why we love them, which you can find at the website, thecinescopepodcast.com. Show notes and contact information for this show can be found at workplacepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thank you for joining us to watch one of our favorite shows, The Office, here on episode 19 of An American Workplace. Make sure to join us in episode 20 for our discussion on the next two episodes of season three, The Convict and A Benihana Christmas. Goodbye. When he walked away, he meaning Jim, I felt completely transported into a new reality. I was Pam, I was talking with my mother, and my heart was breaking, writes Fisher. I spoke into the phone, telling her I was in love with Jim, but I couldn't confess my feelings to him. 
Suddenly, Jim walked in the door. I turned and saw him, and my heart felt like it might burst out of my chest. I wanted so much to tell him how I felt, but before I could, he kissed me. You know, this is really weird for me to read. Would you like to read this? <laughs> Here, I'll, I'll do a reintro um, into the... the Sounds good. Yeah. 